Hey guys, welcome to the Days in the Wild Big Game Hunting Podcast. Just want to talk to you a little bit before we jump into this next episode. You heard me say it a million times. Please give us a review on iTunes. Helps me keep this free. Also, go check out Phoenix Shooting Bags. Make an amazing product. Even if you're not a rifle hunter, pick up one of their glassing pads. You will thank me for it later. And I'm happy to announce our partnership with Primos and Bushnell. I've been using the Primos Hyperdome single read. It's a great cow call and I used a Hyperdome mini to make calf sounds. Listen to my podcast with Joel Turner. You'll know how important it is to have that in your bag of tricks to be able to make calf sounds. Bushnell makes awesome trail cameras and if you go back and you look at my blog Back in 2013 and in 2015, I did uh, independent tests on trail cameras and Bushnell came up out on top both times. Uh, This season, behind the scenes, I did another trail camera test on a few different brands and Bushnell rose to the top again in bang for the buck quality and overall usability. So we decided to partner up with them. And the great thing about that is I'm going to pass along a discount to you guys. You can save 15% if you go to their website and use promo code STL02. That's STL02. Save 15% on anything. You don't have, doesn't have to be the things that I use. We use their ground blinds, a couple of their L calls, and we use the trophy cam. It's an excellent product. Go check them out. I also want to talk to you a little bit about, uh, I know it seems early in the season, but if you don't already know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know that I am an outfitter here in Arizona and I do run hunts in South Dakota. My busiest time of year is archery deer season here in Arizona. I'm busy because I only take out a select few amount of clients. So if it's something you want to get in on, I have a couple slots left and I'm telling you this now early in the season because people always scramble after they realize that they didn't get enough hunting in for the year or they didn't draw the tags that they want to to get in on that hunt. Also, Havelina season. The draw is going to be coming up in the next couple of months. I know it seems far away, but it's really not. October is not that far away. And if you want to get in on an excellent hunt, or if you've never been out west or to Arizona and you want to try something new during a time that there's nothing going on, what are you going to do in February? Twiddle your thumbs? Come out. We have amazing hunts. You could do it with the bow. You could do it with the rifle. You could do it with the muzzleloader. Just all around, inexpensive, good time, good way to spend the last few months of winter and come out and experience nice weather on a super fun hunt. Get in contact with me. We fill up quick. I take anywhere between 12 to 16 hunters a year on that hunt and the camps fill up really quick. So give us a call. Check out daysinthewild.com. Send me a message. Any way you want to get in contact with me, social media, we'd like to put together a hunt for you. So without further ado, let's jump into this next episode. Hi, welcome to Days in the Wild, the Big Game Hunting Podcast. We are going to do a little storytelling session today with Kip Fowler, and uh, we're going to talk, I think, mostly about mule deer. So uh, without further ado, what's going on, Kip? Hey, how are you? I'm good, good. You know, uh, just like we talked about a little bit here when we got, before I hit the record button, just playing Mr. Mom today. You know, got the kids running around the house. My wife uh, ran to work and uh, 
you know, the joy, the joys of uh, COVID, you know? <laughs> oh yeah. It's uh, I can relate to Mr. Mom. And then uh, the days of COVID have magnified that even more. So there's a lot of dads and I guess moms too, but people at home right now that normally wouldn't be at home. So yeah. Yeah. I bet there's a lot of dads listening to this podcast that have changed more diapers in the last three months than they ever thought they would in that three months. Span, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. That's for sure. Uh, it's, it's, it's got its uh, positives and its negatives. I mean, uh, it's definitely given us a time, you know, to, uh, learn to hang out with each other more, you know, you kind of forced to do that. So, yeah. And there's really no other way to look at it. It's, you know, you got to find the silver lining in it. There are pluses to it. There's obviously a lot of difficulty to it too, but I, uh, you know, we've, that's what we were talking about in our home just over the weekend was we've got to try to find the positives in it. Cause it's not going away. And, yeah. uh, and they're there, they're there. You can find them, but it's definitely changed the world as we know it. For sure. So give me a little bit of rundown about yourself and uh, what you do and how you kind of fit into the puzzle of, uh, of the hunting industry. Here. Yeah. I, uh, so I'm 46 years old now, believe it or not, that, that sounds crazy for me to say. I grew up in Southern Utah and I live in Northern Utah now. I went up to, I actually never thought I'd leave Southern, Southern Utah. I, I started bow hunting when I was just little. I was bow hunting from the time I was four, I guess. And I always thought I would stay in Southern Utah but I ended up going to grad school at the University of Utah, which is up in Salt Lake City. And I ended up just staying in the area. We stayed up in northern Utah around Salt Lake. And I still continue to bow hunt primarily mule deer in southern Utah. But in my in about the year, oh, I don't know, 1999 to 2000, my career kept me up in northern Utah. And uh, so that's when I kind of continued to bow hunt closer to, to where it would be home for me for the next 20 years. And that's so a lot of my bow hunting now is this high country stuff because it's nice. right in our backyard here in salt lake we have the the unit known as the wasatch front and it's all backpacking bow hunting which is the kind of bow hunting i've always done but i started in southern utah and i ended up uh you know kind of in the desert country of southern utah but there were areas we found that were backpacking seven eight nine miles in really remote so that mm -hmm. strategy of the backpack in remote type of bow hunting actually fit in really well with up here where I'm at now in, in northern Utah. And we can still backpack in. You know, you can't get as deep, but you sure can get steep up here. It's pretty oh, extreme. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty extreme terrain. As I found out this weekend, I was I drew a mountain goat tag out here and was. Oh, nice. It's a, yeah, it's a once in a lifetime tag. I've been putting in for 20 years and I drew the tag. So I've been hiking like crazy the last month trying to get my legs in shape and trying to find an area that I just haven't been in to look for goats. And I absolutely destroyed my ankle on a, a silly little, just jumping off a little cliff and I landed wrong and tweaked my ankle. And so I've been nursing my ankle up here, but that's what you get up here. It's real steep, rough terrain. And, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's an awesome way to bow hunt because I've learned so much and we've applied what we've learned here to Colorado and different States around the West where we're backpacking in doing kind of these high country bow hunts, primarily for mule deer. And that's really where my passion lies. Awesome. Now this is kind of a selfish question. Do you find it easier to get deer killed in the desert or do you get them or easier to get them killed in the high country? You know, it, it's totally different. So much of what we are doing in the desert country was based on water. I mean, if you go down to Arizona, Arizona strip and you're talking bow hunt, um, yeah. You know, it's different when you're rifle hunting, but when you're bow hunting and you can focus on a water source or a feed source as things dry up over the summer, which 
always happens, those mm-hmm. water sources and feed sources become hot spots for, for deer activity. So you can ambush them. You can set up tree stands, ground blinds. Whereas in the high country where water really isn't an issue and feed really isn't an issue, it's more spot and stock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a totally different type of hunt, but I love that type of hunt. It's One's not more rewarding than another. When we were hunting in the desert, you know, we found an area we were backpacking in a long ways and we found a water hole and it took a lot of work to get to the water hole. And then we had to haul in all of our water and stash it and all of our gear. And then we're sitting on water holes for hours and hours and it's hot. That's one type of, of mental grind and physical grind. And then up here on the, in the higher country, it's just different. It's a, it's spot and stock and you're moving and you're burning calories. And so it's a different type of hunt, but I really do enjoy this spot and stock high country type of hunt because you can kind of facilitate and create more of the action where when you're more ambush water hole or, or feed source hunting, you're kind of having to have the action come to you. So it's a little bit of, uh, of a different uh, scenario there completely. Awesome. Cool. So I have you on today to share some of your past experiences. So if you could share with us a hunt that you possibly had, like, uh, I hate to use this term, but like an aha moment or something that where you learned something about hunting mule deer and it kind of changed, maybe changed the way you hunt or, you, you know, something along those lines. Yeah, I got a couple I can share. The first one, Perfect. you know, I think back to a hunt back in 2001 and it, it was a lower desert country hunt actually. And we had scouted an area and in the year before I had this huge big non-typical deer and we were hunting out of tree stands. We were hunting the edges of some food sources and these bucks would come through right at night. And I had a huge non-typical that came by me on two or three different occasions. And it was just too low light. I couldn't get a good shot. And I, I came to full draw on him a couple times, but I couldn't pick out his vitals. It was a little too dark. And it's so hard to do. But on public land, which this was, all of our hunting's on public land, I opted not to shoot because I wasn't sure I could hit him in a, in a lethal and uh, a legitimate area. And then you always wonder on public land, especially if you'll get another chance at that deer, if he'll come back the next year, because you have public land hunters coming in rifle hunting and muzzleloader hunting. And so I I passed up these opportunities on a, on a deer that uh, I, I hoped I would see again. And then the following year he returned and he was even bigger. And the reason I tell this story is because um, we were bow hunting in the high country, the opening day. And I had found a huge typical I wanted to try to kill with my bow way high in this high country area. We backpacked in. And that particular opening morning of the Utah bow hunt, there were a lot of hunters in the area. I was kind of surprised and I couldn't find that deer. And I said to my brother, I'm bailing off and I'm going to go drive to southern Utah back then when you could hunt the, a, a statewide archery hunt. And I said, I'm going to go after this other deer. So I made the quick decision to just get down to camp haul off what I needed to, hike out, get home, change my gear, drive down to southern Utah, about a four and a half hour drive, try to zip into the tree stand and hunt this other deer that night. So I did all of that. And, you know, here it was seven, eight hours later, I barely made it in time to sit my tree stand this opening night. And lo and behold, this huge non-typical buck ended up coming by me right at last light. (laughs) And as I pulled back to try to shoot him at 26 yards, it was a slam dunk shot my release malfunctioned. And so as I started, yeah, as I started to pull back, 
my release malfunctioned in my, you know, halfway through my draw, it touched off and, and my arrow had landed basically 15 feet in front of this buck, but the buck didn't know what had happened. And he turned and he kind of walked towards me and was looking around and I had time to knock another arrow and I didn't know what had happened. And I start to draw back again on him and the same thing happened. And, you know, midway through my draw, my arrow touched off and this buck took off. And I, I had never had an issue with my release before ever. In fact, for the longest time, you'd laugh, John, I didn't uh -huh. shoot a release for years. I grew up shooting a recurve and a long bow and then even when I switched to a compound bow, I stuck with shooting finger guards because I always was worried about the more technology I became reliant upon, the odds are that something could go wrong. So I resisted forever, even to shoot a release. And then I started to see how much, you know, I would work on my finger release, even with a compound, I would pull back with three fingers, I would drop my bottom finger and shoot with two. And I did all these little things to try to get a smoother release with my finger guards on and then I started to see guys that would come shoot with a release and they were, it was just so much easier. So I finally switched to a release uh -huh. and I'd shot a release for a few years and I had this release malfunction on this, what would have been my largest deer at the time. And it just made me sick. It had never happened before. I'd shot thousands of arrows and practiced all year long. And in this one moment of this incredible opportunity at a world-class deer, it malfunctioned. And I think it was because of all the hiking I had done the night before and the opening morning of the hunt, somehow I'd, my trigger screw, my Allen screw on my trigger had just come loose. And right. so, you know, I, you sit and stew on that and think of it, but I learned so much from it because I realized, you know, it wasn't an equipment malfunction. It was me. I should have checked my gear. And even though it was a frantic situation and I was switching hunting spots, it's still up to me to check my gear. So I learned so much from that as sick as it made me. But Long story, kind of bringing it back around full circle, I kept hunting that deer, and the last weekend of the archery hunt, I ended up taking that deer. He eventually came by me right at dark, and I ended up killing him. Nice. And it was the first deer I took that had broke the 190 mark for a mule deer, and he's an awesome, neat deer. So there was a fun story behind passing him up, you know, two or three times the year before because the shot was questionable, and then I go hunting him. The next year and, and have a release malfunction and then I ended up killing him. And, uh, but I remember when that first happened opening weekend when my release malfunctioned, I came back to camp that night and I was sharing the story and I was so sick. And a friend of mine, Dave Scott, he lives in Idaho now, who was in our hunting camp that year just said, Kip, I've seen so many times where guys that have a really bad, miss, unfortunate experience early on in the hunt, if they stick with it, I can't believe how often they get a second opportunity. And I remember Dave saying that, and as simple as that sounds, and that kind of stayed in the back of my mind. So when I ended up harvesting that deer, it was kind of funny. I, you know, I talked to Dave about it, but it, it also taught me a lesson that it's so easy in bow hunting to get discouraged when something uh -huh. goes wrong. When you have oh, these yeah. moments where you come so close, and we've all had them, where you come so close and then something goes wrong and you've, it's so hard not to just get discouraged and, and want to throw in the towel and move on to something else. But I learned that, yeah, if you stick with it, these opportunities do come. And so I, uh, that was a, a very sobering moment in the initial experience when my release malfunctioned. But to harvest that deer later, that served as a motivator for me that I, you know, you realize things will go wrong in bow hunting. And especially when you throw in the component of 
backcountry, high country hunting and opportunities are few and far between. And you're kind of playing at the mercy of mother nature and all these things that can go wrong. They will stuff will go wrong and you just have to keep pounding it. And, uh, so I was very fortunate that in the end I harvested that deer because it gave me the sense of optimism that I, no matter what goes wrong, if you stick with it, you can have another opportunity again, but then also just to enjoy the moment, just enjoy the experience along the way. And if you don't get that second chance that year, it's okay to stick with it. So that's one experience that really was a focal point for me to give me optimism. I could do it again. And then that came into play on so many other hunts down the road. You know, there's another experience I had, uh, bow hunting in Northern Utah. This was about two years later when I really started to focus on the Wasatch front. And I'd gone in scouting early season and found a huge typical that I thought if I could kill it, it would be the new Utah state record. At that time, nobody had killed a typical velvet mule deer in Utah with a bow that would net score over 200. Nobody had done it. It's been done a really? few times now. Yeah, but at the time, it hadn't been done. And so I found this buck that I thought if I could kill it, he would net over 200 as a typical. So I focused everything wow. on him. And... About oh, two weeks into the hunt, I caught him moving across a rock slide one morning and I lost him in a group of pine trees, but he never came out. So I kind of assumed he had bedded down. So I slipped up this avalanche chute and got on the same elevation as him where I guessed he would have bedded down. And I started slipping across this avalanche chute and I just hit the timber line, the tree line, the little patch of pines that I thought he might be in. And I was slipping across the pine patch. And I caught movement and I looked and there he is bedded down facing away from me at about 20 yards. He was laying there looking the other way. He had bedded down and I'm caught out in the open, but he hadn't seen me. The wind was good, but I had no shot. So I just hunkered down. I had an arrow knocked, but there was no shot for me. So I thought I'm going to just have to wait here until he stands up. And, you know, eventually in the high country, the thermals are going to change you can't be that close for very long without this deer eventually picking up your wind. So I was sitting there ready and just waiting. And finally he stood up. And in the moment he stood up, you know, you have this surge of adrenaline. And again, this is hindsight's 2020. Right. But I pulled my bow back as fast as I could. And when I did that, I had one of these, it was one of the first years they came out with these drop away rests and this rest, my little rest stood up. And it wasn't a fully enclosed archery rest. They didn't have those back then. Yeah. And your like, arrow was on the side of it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I've been there before too. <laughs> yeah, it was, and it was. And this buck, when he stood up, he didn't stand and and kind of take his time. He stood up and turned and started walking towards me all in one motion. So I'm at full draw. He's walking right at me at you know twenty, and I'm counting twenty, nineteen, eighteen, and he's just got his head down, walking right to me, and I'm sitting there looking at my arrow trying to flick it up on the rest and I couldn't do it. And then this buck picks up on my movement and he, he pegs me. So I had to just, I just had to hope and pray that my arrow would, would be okay. And I remember I put my 20 pin right on his brisket and then lowered, he was facing me and it was, so now it's like 18 yards and I put my 20 pin right on the bottom part of his brisket and shoot. And he takes off, and I'm obviously my arrow did not fly true, and it's stuck in the tree. In fact, it's still in that tree. I left that arrow there. It's stuck in the tree next to him. But, you know, that was this lesson. I, I It's another heartbreaking encounter with a buck that was just phenomenal. 
never got another chance at that deer. But again, it made me start to think of what could I have done different? And that's when I started looking into, do they make like a fully enclosed arrow rest? And the next year they came out with them and I jumped all over it. In fact, I was trying to make my own that year. It was, it's kind of funny um, how innovative uh, you can become out of necessity when you try to create some of your own products and put them on your ball. All, this, all these products come from, man. It's people. It is. People searching for the silver bullet, you know, trying yeah, to find I, something to solve a problem. I was laughing because I used to try to film through my spotting scope. And this was like at the same time, like in the early 2000s, I was I made my own phone scope, my own phone case. Yeah, I made my own phone scope. And I I remember telling my wife and my hunting buddies, we should try to put one of these together. And and we didn't. And, and, you know, now the world's changed and everybody uses phone scopes. And but anyway, so, yeah, I, I missed that opportunity on him. And I've got so many of these stories, John, of opportunities missed. But I, I guess the one thing that I have learned is take something from it. Don't beat yourself up. Right. But what right. can you do to prevent that in the future? And that's one thing I have realized. If you look at these really successful bow hunters, they are constantly trying to eliminate things that could go wrong. And it becomes almost obsessive where you start to think in this situation, what could I do to prevent this possible thing happening? And, and the more you try to get out in front of it, you know, eventually those little things work in your favor. And so I, that is, it's just, it's very true for high country mule deer hunting, that if you can try to play out in your mind, every possible scenario and think of little things you can do ahead of time to prevent what could go wrong, eventually that does work in your favor. So that's where some of the, I think the innovation comes there. There's another quick story I'll share. That's kind of funny too, about I had another really big non-typical I had found one year. I eventually harvested him. Actually, I harvested him opening morning. He went to, I think he, he gross scored 214. So he's a big non-typical. And I'd found him early on in the summer and I'd watched him all summer and he was kind of in the same pattern. And he was working every morning. He would work across this open rocky face and cross this spine and bed in some pine trees. Mm-hmm. So I decided to set up a blind two blinds, one high and one low on the spine. So I could try to intercept him on his morning route and and kill him. And it was funny the night before the hunt, I'm laying in my tent and I thought, again, this was in 2000 and I think it was 2012, but I'm laying in my tent and I'm thinking if I have to run up and down this spine, it's going to be noisy. So I start duct taping. I had a little roll of purple duct tape in my tent and I, and I've shared this story before, but I'm laying in my tent. Friday night and I start thinking I had to tape my feet up. So I start, I pull my socks off and I start taping the bottom of my feet just so if I have to take my boots off and run up and down this spine to get in position, I wouldn't tear my feet up. <laughs> and the next morning, sure thing, I'm up on the, I'm up in the higher patch of, uh, of rocks and I spot this buck coming at first light working through the rocks below me. And I had to jump on the backside of the spine and really just run down through the rocks to get in position. And I got my feet duct taped under my socks. I remember the whole time I was thinking as I'm kind of working down in position, how glad I was that I taped my feet because I, you know, where we're hunting, it's rocky and these rocks are sharp. And, right, right. and uh, so I, I ended up killing that buck out of my lower setup. But I, it was just kind of funny, like thinking as I was running through the rocks that I'm so glad I taped my feet. And now we have a, a friend of mine has a product out here called stockasins and they're moccasins that you can throw in your backpack. And if you get into a stocking scenario, you can right. throw these stockasins on. They were great. But in the days prior to that, that was the option was duct tape. And, and again, these little things you do 
uh, to help yourself. I'm sure it gave me an edge in that situation. I didn't tear my feet up. Hell yeah. That's, that's awesome. Man, I, I, I share a lot of your, uh, your philosophy and I'm, and I'm kind of a, people who know me best, they know I'm kind of a, I, I cry over spilled milk kind of guy, but, <laughs> but I never give up because I know that the mornings like where it seems like everything's going wrong. Like you, you know, you didn't get out of bed in time. The, you know, you get to a spot that you want to get to and somebody's already there. So you have to change your plans. You know, all those things like that happen and just get you riled up and think that you're going to have a shitty ass morning. Those are usually <laughs> the ones that work out, you know? Yeah. It's funny how that happens. Right. And and we've all heard those stories of, of guys that everything's going wrong and then somehow that it, it, things end up that you know the the clouds right. open and and mother nature shines on them and so i have firsthand seen that those things can happen now uh, more times than not they don't you know and again yeah. in, in bow hunting if things can go wrong they usually do and right. and and i've talked a lot about our strategy and hunting bow hunting is it rarely comes together on the first morning first setup first stock first it just, it's happened with us, but it's so few and far between that it happens that way. It's usually midway through the hunt. It's two weeks in, it's three weeks in, it's after we've, it's ha after we've hiked in and out multiple times. And I think that's the mentality you have to have as a bow hunter in, in some of the backcountry rougher terrain is just this, you know, if, if it happens early in the hunt and you get an opportunity and harvest an animal, great, but it usually doesn't. And it's, Getting your mental preparation as you're going through your summer scouting and, you know, it's it's so interesting to see so many guys be so dedicated through the summer and they're shooting their bow and they're getting the right gear and they're doing their scouting and, and then they go out and they hunt one day or two days and, and they realize what a grind it can be and, and it, they get discouraged. And so I try to, to share the sentiment that you have to mentally be prepared that it rarely happens that way where you go out and things just come together and... Right. And you harvest your animal. It's this mental preparation of it is going to be a grind. And you have to learn to enjoy that grind. You have to learn to enjoy the early hikes in in the morning or staying overnight and seven, eight, nine, ten days in. Or, or, you know, a lot of guys go in and out for a day, in and out for a day. But to try to find the enjoyment in that because uh, it's just so easy to get discouraged, you know, a few days into the hunt and it hasn't happened and not to lose sight that realistically it's going to be a grind and it's going to take some time. So that mental fortitude and preparation is such a big part of it. That's reality. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and, and every one of your situations, except for the fact that there was a giant deer, um, <laughs> I've been in yeah. every one of those, like I've had the release thing fail on me. So, and ever since then, every time I get into a tree stand or a ground blind, or if I'm setting up a coyote stand or whatever, and I always draw my bow back. I draw it back to see if my release is going to work, if my elbow is going to contact anything behind me, yep. check all my shooting lanes, you know. Yeah, and it's little things like that that you, you, you know, how many, and it's interesting as I, as social media platforms have developed over the last five, seven, nine years, how wonderful it is to listen to podcasts or watch videos and learn little things that other guys do that you need to pick up on. You know, we had a situation in Colorado a couple years ago that I've shared where me and my buddy Matt Bayman were hunting a huge deer and Matt got set up. We do a, a lot of setups where if we locate an animal, we position one guy in the animal's most likely escape route and then the other guy tries to move in on it 
And if you can move in and kill it, great. But usually you don't. Usually when you're slipping in on a mule deer and it's bedded or, or it's out in the open, you know, the success rate's very low and that animal usually will bump or get spooked or, and if you've positioned a guy there, that's where a kill opportunity tends to happen. But we had a situation in Colorado where Matt had set up on this game trail where we thought this big buck would get bumped. And then I, once Matt's set up, I start moving in on this buck and sure enough, it catches my wind because in these high peaks, the wind is doing everything under the sun and it picked up my wind and it went right to Matt and it came right down this trail going right to Matt. And as Matt came to full draw at 20 yards, just veered to the right. And as Matt positioned and moved his bow to the right to kill it, Matt stabilizer just hit this little branch and he couldn't, you know, he had just, Matt had tucked in under this pine tree and there was a pine bough coming out that he expected the buck to go left, but the buck at the last minute went right. And no, for no particular reason, the buck just went right. And Matt couldn't get the shot he wanted off on this deer because of this one branch. And not that Matt did anything wrong, but you know, we both learned like, man, if that was, if he would have cut one branch, it would have changed that whole scenario. So yeah, you just learn these little things along the way that if you're, if you have the presence of mind to go through kind of your, your process in a situation, you might eliminate some of these things that generally will go wrong. Um, and that's part of, you know, I, again, I go back to when I was 18, we had backpacked into this area and we're sitting in an ambush situation. I had this huge, the deer I wanted to kill, this it was about a 32-inch big typical, it was a huge buck and it came in, gave me a perfect broadside shot and I shot and went four feet over its back and it wasn't until later that I found out on the backpacking hike in, my sights had been bumped and my whole sight housing was loose. And, you know, I sat in that setup opening day for hours and I never thought to check, are my sights tight? You know, I just didn't check on that. And as an 18-year-old kid, to work that hard and to miss what I thought at the time would be this opportunity of a lifetime on a world-class deer, it was so disheartening for me. But again, it motivated me. You know, you'd have laughed. I went home that weekend and I put nail polish, like Loctite, on my, on my sight housing. And then, you know, 20, 30 years later of bow hunting, I still, I'm paranoid about my sights moving. And I'm paranoid that my rest is going to come loose. And so I'm always, I'm always checking my stuff to make sure I don't overlook something like that. Because when I was 18, that happened to me. And so it's made me a better hunter. And I think a lot of times, John, you know, it's only through these really unfortunate situations that we become better hunters. Devils of the details, you know, but like I, I, I'm with you. I've had, I mean, everything you're saying, it's, I've been in the same situation like now, nowadays, you know, I've been doing it for probably 15, 20 years. Now I take a sharp, uh, you know, silver Sharpie. I mark all the positions on my site. I mark yeah. my peep site because I've had that slide up on me before or you yep. know, move, you know, even though I tie them in or whatever, I mark, yeah, my, I kiss, take I mark I my kisser film. bucket, I film my rest, I film my sites, I film everything take pictures on my phone because we always have our phones with us. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, if we're going to backpack in somewhere, I'll get, we'll get in and in downtime, I will check, look at my yeah. pictures, look at my marks and just make sure nothing's been moved and nothing's bumped because, you know, it doesn't take much to throw something off. And then, uh, you know, you work so hard for these opportunities and to have an equipment issue cause you to either miss or put a, a, uh, you know, a, a, a wounding an animal. It's just, if you can button those things up, 
those are just little things to think about that um, can come into play down the road. So hard lessons learned. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. No, I, I actually been, <laughs> it's funny that we're talking about this. I've been working on a blog post that's been sitting in my draft pile over here on my, on my bike. A lot of times I start stuff and don't finish it, but uh, about, about all the things that you, you know, you can do to control some of the unexpected things that happen in, in the field. And, you know, these are a lot of the things that I've, you know, I've seen over the years that just happen. You know, you, you can check things. You can't control that they're going to happen or not. You know, they're just going to happen. And if they happen, you, you, you need to be able to be able to deal with it and you know, work around it. Like, yeah. Your rest situation, you know, I, I, I finished your sentence because I was there. I've been there. Yeah, before. you know. So, you know, like I shoot a QAD, which is a drop away. But that has the ability to, you know, you can click it up with your thumb. Yeah. I never, ever, ever, even in my practice, I never shoot by just drawing back and letting that thing pull itself up. I always yeah, click it into position. It, yep. I always lift it first because I've been right where you are. I've been where you are in hunting, and I was there. We was doing a pop-up 3D shoot, which is kind of like a speed thing. So to save that step of clicking up, I would I was drawing back and. It, I lost the, you know, I made it to the finals and I lost the finals because my damn, I went to draw back and my <laughs> yeah. arrow was stuck on the side and I had to let down and try to get the thin, you know, and I never, I never ended up making the Well, and this, the and you know, it's interesting too. You can take this conversation, but I think this is a really, a really important one to take this conversation into the other aspect of hunting, which is not the gear related side of it. And again, I'm talking mainly mule deer and kind of backpacking in type hunting, but it's the, it's the other side of the gear component, kind of, which is the food component where you'll have guys that are planning a hunt and when they go in to hunt and they're, they're doing this first type of maybe high country backpack in backcountry hunting, they haven't tried that, the type of food they're going to take on the hunt. They haven't tried the mountain house meals, the dehydrated food, the, the snacks or whatever. And then they get back in the back country and they realize some of that stuff doesn't agree with them very well. So okay, I, yeah. I talked about this on a previous podcast, but it's, something worth noting that if guys are going to do kind of that type of a hunt or, you know, maybe you're going to Alaska and you're hunting caribou or doll sheep or, or moose or whatever to, tr you know, try to ahead of time, figure out what kind of food you're going to be eating on that hunt and test it out and see how your body likes it or doesn't like it. And, uh, you know, we've seen situations where guys will, we were up in Alaska last year hunting and, guys that haven't eaten dehydrated food and and if you're in a situation where you're remote and your body's not agreeing with the food oh, that'll yeah, that'll trouble. kill you as fast as anything is meaning not kill you but that'll kill your no. hunt you're, you're going to be yeah, sick take you out of the game for sure it'll take you out of the game so there's little things like that that if you're planning right now it's june july early august and you're planning on doing kind of a hike and hunt test some of that food out while you're at home before you work out after you work out see what your body does when it's burning calories and you throw in a high sodium mountain house meal at night what's it going to do and what can you do to prevent it and are there different types of foods you can eat that'll help in that situation more and and that part of the conversation that I think is overlooked a lot really comes into play I I've been very aware of guys that have gone in and they've, they've done all the equipment checks and all the mental preparation and they have all the right gear. And then they go in on a hunt like that. And three days in, they burned a ton of calories because they're hiking like crazy and their body's cramping up because the food they're eating isn't agreeing with them and it's not processing it well. And so that's just another aspect for guys to think about in a, 
in a hunt like that, that's going to be physical and you're eating different types of foods that maybe you've eaten before, try it out ahead of time and see what you like and what you don't see what your caloric intake would be on a hunt like that. And where your sweet spot is. Uh, it's just, it's something that I don't think gets talked about much, but unfortunately if you're, it would just be a shame to see guys go through a situation like that where their hunts ruined because they're not feeling good because their body's processing a food they haven't tried before, you know? Oh yeah, for sure. Like luckily and unluckily for me, I'm kind of forced to bring food that I'm used to eating because I'm allergic to garlic and I'm allergic to onions. And every one of those mountain houses, except for the scrambled eggs it's like, yeah. or the dessert, has is loaded with garlic and onions because they got to do something to make it taste good. So they mask it. So I don't ever, I can't eat any of those dehydrated. So you really have to yeah. prepare your own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a, like, you know, guy that has to eat oatmeal every day or, you know. Well, we were, it was funny because we're doing so much backpacking. But a few years ago, we were in Colorado and a buddy that I went with ended up coming in from a different way and came in on his horses mm -hmm. and he showed up to camp and we got all this dehydrated food and and we're fine with that but he shows up and it's just got this insane amount of normal food just normal food you know blocks of cheese Steaks. and, and <laughs> unreal. i was just laughing and i couldn't believe that's me <laughs> i couldn't believe how much easier it was to stay hunting as hard as we wanted to hunt you know, five days in because we could just pound the food. And so it was a good lesson again for me to learn that that food intake on some of these hunts is so important and the right kind of food, you know, and it was funny. This is a story I've told before, but it was funny. It was on that hunt. So we, we backpack into this drainage that we think is going to be isolated, remote. See, very few guys were, were backpacked into Bohunt mule deer and we come through this pass the Friday afternoon before the hunt starts and we look down in this valley where we're going to set up our camp and there's like there was all these tents in the bottom i it, it, it was i can't even remember it's like 15 or 20 tents or something and Jesus. all gathered together and we thought this is crazy and so we get down we set our camp up and then i we i wanted to go over and talk to whoever this was to see what their plans were and it ends up being this high school group of kids from okay. yeah they were in colorado and it was part of their high school curricula they had all these they had an alternative curricula for these kids at their school where they would take their normal core classes. And then in the summer, they would take all these outdoor classes like kayaking, mountaineering, camping, hiking. Um, and they would get their high school diploma, but they had all this different curricula. It was awesome. But there was these kids that were going to be there all week and their, their teacher was there and we had a good conversation with her and they were actually fascinated that we were bow hunting. They thought it was pretty neat. And so the next day we spot these mule deer bedded up in these cliffs right next to some mountain goats. It was actually really cool, but we decide we're going to try to stalk in and kill these deer that are clear up in these cliffs. And so as we start to make our approach out of camp, all these kids are sitting there and we're like, do you guys want to watch? So we give them our spotting scopes. So we had this whole group of kids, these high school kids, watching us as we're sneaking up the mountainside and slipping through the rocks and kind of getting our strategy into play. The, all the, you can see these kids down below watching us through the spotting scopes. And uh, I ended up harvesting one of those deer. I shot it with my bow, and it ended up falling down the mountain. It broke every horn. It shattered everything on the way down. But these kids got to watch the whole thing. And their instructor later told us, she said, that was the coolest thing they saw all week. They, you know, we, they saw mountain goats, they saw sheep, we took them up to glacial lakes and they swam in the lakes and they learned how to make fire out of bow drills. And 
they did all this really neat stuff, but the, a lot of the kids said the neatest thing was watching these guys bow hunt deer in this really extreme terrain, That's and they awesome. saw somebody kill one. So they, you know, it was, that was kind of a funny situation. I mean, it was on that trip the next year in the same area. We found, uh, God, we found a plane crash uh, way up wow. in these peaks. So anyway, you get these experiences that, you know, you and I are sharing this morning that can only happen on the mountain, and that's why we're, uh, you know, I'm such an advocate to just go. Just get out and go get your own experiences and then you'll find yourself, you know, a year or two later or more looking back and just realizing some phenomenal experiences you've had with other people. You have friends that are joining in the process, but that was a fun one anyway, where, uh, these, these kids that had, a lot of them had never experienced anything in the wild, got to sit and watch these, these guys bow hunt a deer and harvest That's one awesome. with a bow. And yeah, it was really cool. Oh, I wonder how many uh, of those kids you, you guys converted into bow hunters. Yeah, I don't know. It <laughs> scared them away because they got to sit and watch this this animal take a, a you know a six hundred <laughs> might have scared them for life. But no, they're uh, they were a group of kids that obviously had an interest in the outdoors. That's why they were yeah. there. Yeah. But yeah, that was their again. Their instructor said that they thought that was that was really good for these kids to see that you could you could be in this kind of country and watch somebody. With a with a primitive weapon, so to speak, a bow, you know, get up in these cliffs and rocks and harvest an animal. Yeah, that's awesome. Sweet man, that that was like probably one of the better storytelling sessions I've done in a long time. Um, <laughs> well, there's a, there's a lot. You know, it's just funny it's just, though, John. I I look back. There's so many things that uh, that uh. You know, you, you realize all these little experiences and there's some tough experiences you have as well. You know, there's, like I said, this weekend, I'm up scouting for my mountain goat hunt. I destroyed my ankle. I, I just hopped off a little ledge and I, I don't even know if I broke it or not, but it is a week later and it's, you know, you have experiences that aren't so pleasant, but you learn from them and they start to contribute to how you identify who you are. They really do. Like when I, my primary source of, of my own personal identification is I'm a, I'm a husband and a father mm-hmm. and I'm a bow hunter and it's a big part of who I am. And so I think as people get out and about in the mountains, I'm, I'm hoping people develop an appreciation for bow hunting and the challenge that it presents. But if not, just to get out and enjoy, you know, the outdoors and the mountains and you can start to facilitate and experience some of your own, you know, stories to tell. That's awesome, man. You got to you got a great outlook on stuff, and uh, obviously that uh, that comes out in your hunting because you've been a very successful hunter. And uh, no, it's it's uh, it's good. A lot of a lot of guys share stories with me, and I like I like the approach that you gave, and 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 I think there's a lot of good takeaway from that, and people can learn from it if you're paying attention and and not just listening to the the story itself, uh, but. Yeah. Do you have uh, any other final closing words you want to share with everybody? Oh, no, it's, it's been good to visit. I, I, you know, one thing I will say is I love hearing guys experience guys and gals that will share their experiences. Um, there's always learnings to take away from other people's experiences and, and it's enjoyable. The one thing I will say is I wish I would have written more of these experiences down because your perspective over time changes and, and your yeah. memory changes, unfortunately. And, I wish from day one, every time I went out, every single time, I wish I would have just wrote one paragraph in a journal. One, Me just, too. wouldn't that be fun to go back and, and, and you know, it's different now because we have cameras and, and phones and you're always taking pictures, but I wish I had something 
to read. That would be an unbelievable book to go back and read now. And I guess it's not too late, but I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have taken, you know, five minutes and just written in a journal so that I could look back and, and have little things to read because you it would facilitate and bring to your memory things that you've forgotten over time. And, you know, we talk about as friends, hunting friends, some of the funniest little conversations you have with your buddies when you're hunting. And I wish we would have kept track of some of those because that would be a good, a good book as well. But anyway, no, I appreciate it, John. It's been good to visit with you. Thank you. Think about it. Think about what a scouting tool that would be or, uh, or, uh, you know, a tool to, to actual, uh, harvesting animals, you know, you, you write down little little details. I actually yep. used to keep a journal for whitetail hunting, you know, but it was it was really more based for like the scouting and the the observations I made while I was hunting, which are really you know scouting while you're hunting or whatever, you know. And uh, they they it translated. Like I kept a lot of notes on, yeah. on moon phase and weather and wind conditions and stuff like that early on. I don't do it anymore. Well, now I guess kind of like too, John. That that starts to build up in your mind your knowledge base. But right. how many times have you had to relearn the same thing again because you forgot? Or exactly. you know, that happens to me all the time where I find myself relearning something I know I already learned or thought of once. And over time, you know, it's yeah. just different when you're in your mid forties and late forties than when you're in your twenties. And I'm I find myself learning and re remembering things that I know I already thought of and knew twenty years ago. So. Yeah, yeah I think it's yeah. So it's 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 something that I don't know if guys will do, but boy, I would encourage that because that would be fun. Well, no, you don't even have to write it down anymore. You got a phone. You got a voice, phone. Yep. Voice That's memo. what I tell people. You don't need a photographic memory anymore because you had a photo. You have a photograph of every memory on your phone, so nobody needs to have a good memory anymore because you got yeah. pictures of everything. Exactly. Well, awesome, man. Thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge and time with us. Um, I'd definitely like to have you back on and and. and uh, and have you on for a uh, more traditional podcast where I'm asking you questions, specific questions and whatnot, and uh, and, and and pick your brain a little bit more, you know? Seems, yeah, seems like you got it. Seems like uh, you got it figured out pretty good. <laughs> well, I'm still figuring it out, but uh, I appreciate. It. I look forward to it. Let's stay in touch. All right, buddy. Thank you. Thanks. All right, bye.